Hello? Hello! Oh, man, it's good to be back up here. I, 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 my name is Dagan. I preached last semester a couple times, preached. I'm weird, so I don't really preach. I'm going to move this ridiculously tall microphone out of the way, and now you can't even see me because Chris is too tall. I think, I think he does qualify as too tall, not you, other Chris. Uh, my name is Dagan. I am working with our junior guys this semester, this year, and I'm really excited about that. We've got some really awesome guys. I've been working here for a little while now, um, and I've just, I've just had a really awesome time working with you guys, some people that, that are relatively new to this stuff um, and just trying to figure it out, and some people that have kind of grown up in this stuff and, and really want to go deeper here. Um, and I've loved working with, with, with all kinds of people out here. And today we're going to be talking about something um, that I think both of those groups are going to be able to connect with pretty well. So we're talking about life upside down. I was going to do a handstand to give you something memorable to look at, but I decided not to show off. Be, but rest assured, I'm perfectly capable of doing such a thing. So instead, I decided I'd tell you a little story about the time I almost blew up my friend Tomek. Um, and I need, I, I'm going to need a chair for this one. So I'm going to take you back in time, which is fun because we just sang Oceans. So I'm going to take you back in time to 2015, January 1st, 2015. Right after New Year's Eve night, firing all the fireworks. $700. So we fired a ton of fireworks on New Year's Eve night, had a great time, but we didn't fire off all the fireworks we had. There was a little pile left over. They were all pretty much kind of small, and so the next morning, I had spent the night at a friend of mine's house. There were four of us, including myself, and and we had a few fireworks left. They were all kind of small, and they weren't that impressive, and so we wanted to do something with them, but we wanted it to be fun, and these weren't like, you know, the really fun fireworks. So what we decided to do was take all the black powder out of all of them and put it in a pile in the middle of the street uh, which there are about 17 things wrong with that idea. And then we got, we, you know, we got a little bit more and we made like a little trail, like a little fuse of it because we've seen cartoons. We know how gunpowder works, right? And so then I get a lighter and I give it to Tomek so that he can go and, and, and light it up. And he goes up, to the, he goes up to the little fuse. So just to clarify, what we expect to happen is he lights the fuse and it does this really cool thing where it kind of trickles down to the pile and then the pile goes off and it's just this spectacular show. So we're all kind of standing back a little bit because I think there's a small part of all of us that knows it's not going to go that way. And Tomek lights the end of that fuse and I don't know if you know this about gunpowder, but it doesn't just roll in a nice little fuse. It lights up all at once. And Tomek was, that cup is the black powder. He was right here. And so it blew up and it, and it, I mean, <laughs> I think the mental damage that it did to him was probably more severe than the physical. He still had one eyebrow left, but it was, you know, it was terrifying for him. And it didn't go the way we wanted it to. Um, it, it subverted our expectations. Subverted, that's your word of the day. Um, and so with Life Upside Down, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about how Christ is laying out this blueprint for how his kingdom looks. And it's all kinds of upside down. It subverts all expectations. It goes against the grain in every way. Jesus Christ is one of the most influential human beings to ever live, even if you don't believe that he is also the Son of God. But that's weird, because he was a carpenter. He didn't come from a lot of money. 
He didn't come from a lot of influence. So if you think about what made people influential back in Jesus' time, what made people influential back in Jesus' time? Dollars. Those dollar bills, y'all. Knowledge. Okay. Dollars and knowledge. They didn't have dollars, but the equivalent, denarii. So, yeah, yeah. Knowledge, dollars, what else? Who is influential? Kings, emperors, Pharisees, religious leaders, right? People that that are very affluent in the religious community. People that are war heroes, right? How many of those things was Jesus? Kind of none of them. He He wasn't one of the big notable figures. Yet he becomes a very influential character in this story and in our world. So today we're going to be talking about the people of God, the Christians, as a people of influence. Um, And because this kingdom is upside down, the ways that we are influential is a bit weird too. So we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20. I don't see anyone. Okay, I see four people reaching for their Bibles. Thank goodness. Matthew 5, 13 through 20. And I want us to read this together. I have slides of it. There they are. I got slides of it. Um, but there's something really cool about holding it in your own hands. I have a Bible myself. So follow along with me. Uh, 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Into verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus talks about a few things there. And it all seems, I mean, to some of you, you're probably like, ah, that's pretty straightforward, Dagan. How are you going to make that into a 30-minute sermon? Watch this. Jesus talks about three different things. He talks about salt, he talks about light, and he talks about the law. But these aren't, Jesus isn't talking about three different, he doesn't just go from one thing to the next. He's talking about the same concept here. They're all working together. They're all connected, and here's how. So if we go back to verses 13 through 16, this is where Jesus is talking about about salt and light. So this is weird. But Jesus is making an analogy. Jesus is pretty good at analogies. He does lots of analogies. Some are called parables. He's trying to describe the unimaginable things of heaven and earth to fishermen and tax collectors. And so he's like, okay, heaven, heaven, earth, the kingdom of God. Okay, you know salt? You know salt, yeah? And they all go, yes, we know salt. Yeah, we, we're familiar with salt. He's like, it's tasty. It tastes really good. There's two things going on here. Salt, salt tastes really, really good. It's a spice that you have to add to everything to make it taste good. Food, food is awesome, don't get me wrong, but food without salt, dude, I love salt. I could just stand here. I could give you a 30-minute sermon on salt. You want me to? I will, you sure? All right. But there's a second thing, there's a second thing that isn't quite mentioned in the passage, but remembering that some of Jesus' disciples are fishermen, they're definitely familiar with this, and probably so is everyone else. Salt is also used as a preservative. This is probably even more important, because these fishermen go out in the sun in their boats, they catch fish, they put them in a basket, and those fish are going to be 
rotten by the time they get back to shore if they keep fishing. And they don't want to go back to shore every time, so they throw some salt on them, close them up, and it helps preserve the fish, keep them, keep them fresh. The fishermen definitely sniff this out. You, gotta, you catch fish, you've got to put salt on them and Jesus is, and, and to preserve them, and salt makes food taste better. And Jesus is like, dude, you know how salt makes everything taste better? You know how salt preserves things? You're my salt, bro. He's really romantic like that. We may be salty, but he's sweet, like sugar. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is our sugar. You don't like that? Jesus said you add flavor to my world, guys. You guys add flavor to my world. The world that I love, you are the, you are the, the top spice for it. And you take care of it. I want you to take care of it for me and preserve it. But if you're not salty, then you're not doing your job. The only thing you're useful for, if you're not being salty enough, is to be thrown on footpaths to keep more grass from growing there so that people can walk on you. So stay salty, guys. Okay, that's nice, Jesus. But how do we, Jesus is like, also, you're light. You're a city up on a hill, bright city up on a hill. You give light to the whole region. You're, you're, a, you're a candle in a lamp, on a lampstand in a house. You light up my whole house. And you aren't going to cover up your light because that would be stupid. Who does that? And we can track the metaphor here. We aren't supposed to hide our faith. We're supposed to light up the world with our faith. We're supposed to light up the darkness of the world, right? The spiritual darkness. And we're supposed to take care of the world. We're supposed to preserve the world. We're salt. We're supposed to make it tasty. All right. I can track the metaphor here. That all makes sense. But there's not really, this isn't really instructions. This is the final step of the instructions. Do you kind of see what I'm talking about? This is, you know, be the salt. Okay, how do I do that? Well, it's cool how Jesus goes on, isn't it? In verses 17 and 18, Jesus is going to go on. Now, you might be saying, but hang on, Dagon. He isn't talking about salt or light anymore. He starts talking about the law, which is, I'm glad you're paying attention. That's right. You're wrong, but that's right. He is talking about the law. This isn't some tangent like I do. I do this all the time, but Jesus is talking about the same thing. Jesus is now providing context for what he's talking about. So do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus isn't giving contradicting laws. He's not laying out new laws. He's explaining how the law that they already have should look. If you're doing what, what I gave you thousands of years ago, then this is what it should look like. I'm not adding anything to it. I'm not taking anything away from it. He's not relaxing the law, nor is he making it more strict. He's, he's explaining what it's supposed to look like in your life. The law or the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the entire Old Testament, all of their scripture up to this point. Jesus is like, you, I fulfill that. All the prophecies, all the laws, I fulfill it. For a, from a Jewish understanding, we have three aspects of the law. This is where I get really academic, so try to track with me. This is really complicated. Three things at once? Are you kidding? Yes. No, I'm not. Moral law, the Ten Commandments. How does Jesus fulfill the moral law? How does, how does Jesus fulfill the moral law, the Ten Commandments? How does he do it? He's perfect. $10. You get $10. Yeah, now everyone wants to answer, don't they? The ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is, relates to sacrifices and the priesthood, right? If you, make, if, you, if you mess up, then you've got to make a sacrifice to atone for your sin. 
if, if you want to communicate with God, you've got to go to the priesthood, right? How does Jesus fulfill the ceremonial law? He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, literally. He's so perfect, as if you need the modifier so. He's perfect. So whenever he's sacrificed, that's enough to atone for all of the sin ever in the history of the world and for the future of the world. And because of that, we no longer need a priesthood to communicate with God. We can communicate to, to God through Jesus, who is also God. We have a direct line of communication now. He fulfills the ceremonial law by becoming our high priest, by becoming all of our sacrifices that we would ever need to make to atone for the absurd amount of sin that we commit. And then you have the judicial law. God will judge the wicked and the sinful. This is pretty simple. I didn't even provide a citation for this one because it's all over the Old Testament. Right? The promise that the people that, the people that harm the people of God and, and spit in the face of God will be judged. The wicked will be judged. But Christ personifies God's perfect justice. Here's how he does that. When God judges the world, he sees sin, and he pours wrath out onto the world. But when, when, when God sees the people, the people who Christ died for, the people who have faith in his son, he doesn't see the sin. He sees Christ standing in front of him, saying, no, 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 <laughs> I got, we got this guy. This is one of ours. He, he has faith. He loves us. And so we've taken care of his sin. Don't, don't, Christ isn't saying don't judge the world. Christ isn't saying, you know, turn off your justice for a second. It's God's perfect justice to give grace to whoever he wants. But Christ gives us, gives us an avenue to talk to God directly about that. And he caps us all off in verse 18, where he talks about iota and dot, and none of that makes any sense. Now, I don't know what your, what your translations say. Some say jot and tittle, and that's a reference to something that's written in the Old Testament. I saw a few that had something to do with dots and dashes, like it's Morse code out here, but it's not. The law for them is written in Hebrew. This is what Hebrew looks like. Isn't that fun? I've studied this for a year and a half. So I get this verse, and I'm going to use that year and a half of knowledge right here. Okay, so we got iota and dots. Iota is a reference to this little letter, this first circle over here, because you read this way. It's that circle over there. That's a yod. It makes a little y sound. But sometimes when it's combined with the wrong things, it just kind of gets all sad and doesn't even make a noise at all. So this word, this word, if you read it with that little letter, with that yod, with that iota, you got, you got vayahi. If you take away that letter, it's still vayahi. So you could kind of take it away, and people would still understand what you're saying, and nobody would even really notice it's missing. And the dot, I don't know if you can identify a dot or not, so I drew a circle around one for you. Some of these dots are just accent marks. They tell you to say a letter a little bit more aggressively. <laughs> it's, Hebrew is interesting. Um, and, so, and so you've got, you've, got, uh, you've got amati, or amatai, but if you take away the dot, it's still amatai. So this is nerdy stuff that doesn't really matter. But here's, here's, here's why it kind of does matter. Because Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of these things, but we don't take anything away from these things. I don't think God really cares about our font of choice in terms of the Old Testament or the language that we read it in. But here's, what, here's the important thing. Christ is saying, don't even touch it. 
Just because I'm the fulfillment of these things doesn't mean that you can forget them. Doesn't mean that you can sweep it under the rug. And Jesus goes on in verse 19 to talk about this some more. He talks about how important the law still is. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If we're teaching the Bible and teaching about God, but we're ignoring the entire Old Testament, and we're not doing the things the way that Christ taught us, and Christ taught us this for good reason, I think we have a habit in a lot of churches now to kind of sweep the Old Testament under the rug a bit. Not really intentionally, it just kind of falls out of focus, right? Because Jesus and Philippians is so good, right? Philippians, so good. Any Philippians fans out here? Let me hear a holla for Philippians. I love Philippians. But the Old Testament is weird, and so it makes it really hard. How do you preach some of this stuff? Jonah gets swallowed up by a big fish, maybe a whale, I don't know. And then he, gets, he lives in there for a little while, and he's like, God, okay, fine, I'll do what you want. And so he gets spit out, and he's like, fine, I'll do what you want. And he goes and, you know... He, he finally tells his enemies about God so that, so that they don't get smitten, smot, smote, smited. That's what I was going for. And they accept his message, and they're like, you're right. We're sorry. Even our cows are sorry. We're going to put, they have sackcloth, and they put it on the cattle. That's how sorry they are. They're like, even our cows are sorry. Even the cattle are out here trying to worship. And Jonah's like, you know what? I kind of wanted them to die, so I don't really like that. So he goes and sits on a hill, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna throw a little fit about this. So God plants a tree. The tree grows up, gives him shade. He's like, that's a cool tree. And then God puts a worm on the tree to kill it. Jonah's a really fun story. But it's weird. How do you preach from that? God smites Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we, talked about, we, we were talking about Abraham in the main services right now. So a- Abraham and Lot end up in this, in, in, in this pair of cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is like, these cities are especially bad. So I'm going to get rid of them. Abraham, time to go. I'm going to get rid of these cities. Uh, you got to leave. And he's like, what about Lot? He's like, yeah, bring Lot. And so they're, they're like, and, and God's like, oh, by the way, if you turn around and you look at what I'm doing to the cities as you're leaving, I'm going to turn you into salt. And Abraham's like, right. Cool, got it. So he's like, Lot, come on. Lot's like, come on, wife, come on. I don't remember Lot's wife's name. But he's like, come on. And she's like, what? Why are we? And she turns into a pillar of salt. How do you preach from that? You tell me. Give me a sermon from that. I'll preach it. Maybe. <laughs> Depending on whether it's any good. But the Old Testament is awesome, too. The Old Testament is awesome. There's some stuff you can really preach from the Old Testament. Creation, created in the image of God, the breath of God in our lungs. We, we were created and we were very good. Some, some, somehow better than the rest of God's creation in his eyes. The Exodus God brings the most powerful empire in the region to its knees to rescue his people. And he parts, he parts a sea to get him out of there. There's some cool stuff in there. Elijah, you remember Elijah? Have you guys read about Elijah? He's, everyone hates Elijah right now because he's the last prophet of God in Israel, right? In, or in the, in the entire region. He's the last prophet of God. And so he's like, okay, we'll have a showdown. We'll build altars. And whoever's God lights their altar first wins. They have the real God. And surprise, surprise, Elijah wins. And it makes everyone want to kill him. So he runs away. And he finds this cave in this mountain. And he hides in this cave. And he's like, God, I just want to die. And God's like, don't, why? And Elijah's already asleep, right? And so God wakes him up. He's like, Elijah, wake up. I made you a cake. Can you eat the cake so that you don't die? And Elijah, I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. And Elijah's like, fine. And so he eats the cake, and he's like, I still want to die. And he goes back to sleep. 
And so God wakes him up again. God sends an earthquake. God sends thunder, landslides, all of these catastrophes around Elijah. And Elijah's like, God, is that you? And God goes, no. This is me. This little voice. This is me. I don't know about you, but I can preach from that. But there's some things in the Old Testament that seem strange to us now. Right? Don't touch dead things. Don't sleep around. Don't eat pig. Does, ha, does that seem arbitrary, some of those things? Maybe it does. Or shouldn't you touch dead things? What's the, what's the reason that God maybe doesn't want his people that are wandering around in the desert to touch dead things? What, what, I can't think of a, pot, of, of a single practical reason why they shouldn't be walking along, see some carcass of something, and go, oh, cool. I can't think of a single reason why God would be like, don't do that. You're going to die, and it's not even going to be like, it's not even going to be in some spectacular way. You're just going to die because you're dumb. Don't eat pigs. Let's see. We can eat cattle, but we can't eat pigs. Is there a practical difference between a cow and a pig? How about where they live? Let's start with that. What do cows stand on the majority of time? Grass. What do pigs stand on the majority of the time? Mud's a nice word for it. Because if the pigs stand in that all the time, then what is also in that mud? And what do those pigs eat? Are you seeing the cycle here? It's like the water cycle, but much worse. So maybe, maybe there's a practical reason that God doesn't want his people going, walking over to these animals, just, you know, through all of this. He, they're in the desert. They're, he's trying to keep them alive. Why, why shouldn't you? Do you know what happens when you sleep around a lot? Babies happen when you sleep around a lot. And I love babies. Babies are awesome. But if you're wandering around the desert, you've got a bunch of single mothers. You see a problem with that? Being a single mother is hard in this country now. It's difficult to do. Can you imagine thousands of years ago in the desert, wandering around all the time? God's trying to keep his people alive. He's trying to take care of them. These rules aren't arbitrary. They all have a purpose. They're because God cares about his people. The biggest part of these rules is the law, the Ten Commandments. Christ says, okay, you know what? You want to eat? Fine. You can eat whatever you want. I don't care. Whatever. I don't care. But don't touch the law. Don't touch my law. That's perfect. That makes the world a better place. It's practical stuff. Don't kill one another. Stop stealing from each other. Love me. God says, love me, please. I love you so much. Oh, heartbreaking. You guys have all seen teen drama movies. How heartbroken do people seem whenever they, whenever they fall in love with someone that doesn't even know they exist? If I had Ten Commandments, that would be all ten of them. Just love me. I love you so much. I don't know if there'll be a ranking system in the kingdom of heaven. This last part's kind of weird. It's called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if there's going to be, you know, first brigadier general of the kingdom of heaven. I don't know. But for sure, I think Christ is saying something that's not all that complicated for us to understand. He's saying that if you mess up, you're not going to get kicked out of heaven. That's not, what the, that's not what's, what's happening here. What Christ is saying, I think, is pretty simple. He's saying if you're going to talk the talk, dude, walk the walk. Don't teach that you're a Christian. Don't talk about being a Christian and then behave otherwise. If you're going to talk the talk, you're going to say that you follow me. Make sure you're actually following me. Verse 20 is heavy stuff. Verse 20 is hard. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's two things going on here. Don't you love it whenever I say, I think there's an X number of things going on here. I think there's two things going on. I think that for the disciples at the time, they're sitting on the mount, they're listening, to, they're listening to Jesus, and he's like, you see how righteous the scribes and the Pharisees are? And they're like, yeah, they're really righteous. Have you seen how often they pray? They have little boxes with psalms in them, literally strapped to them all the time. These people, they, they live and breathe their religion. They live and bl- breathe Judaism. The scribes are the ones that are literally writing the book. They're making copies of Scripture, and they're reading it in front of, in front of the, the, the churches, in front of the temple, in front of the communities of, of the Jewish people. So the disciples at the time, they hear Jesus saying, you know, you see how righteous those people are? You see how hard they pray, how hard they try to keep the law? You've got to be better than that. I can't do that. Christ is saying, you've got to be something, you've got to be so cool You've got to be so righteous that it's like nothing the world has ever seen before. You've got to be a whole new breed of righteous if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven. So at first, I think that's what the disciples hear. But later on, I think the disciples get another meaning to this. I think they see where Jesus set the bar and they find out they can't reach that level of righteousness. Because it, what he's calling them to is essentially perfection, right? The Pharisees seem to be one step shy of perfection. And, you know, Jesus rips into the Pharisees a few times, kind of roasts them a little bit. But in general, I, I, you know, this is the way the disciples see them. So they, they find out they can't reach that level of righteousness on their own, and Jesus says, that's what I'm for. They watch the crucifixion. They see the resurrected Christ. And suddenly, I think the second part clicks a little bit. Jesus says, here's the law, obey it. It makes the world a better place. Keep my commandments. And be so righteous because of that that the world has to ask what's up. If you mess up, I got you. Don't worry about it. I think later when Christ dies on the cross, the disciples see him raised, they see this side of it. They see the side that now liberates them from this need to be this perfect type of righteous. And suddenly it feels a lot easier to obey the law because every mistake isn't the mistake that keeps you out of heaven. Every mistake is what Christ died for. That's why when they go around after Christ's ascension, they don't go around grabbing everybody's Isaiah scrolls out of their hands, shredding them. They don't tear up everybody's old copies of the Old Testament and say, no, 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 all you need is Jesus. They go to people and they point out and they say, good, you're reading that. That's awesome. That's God's law. Obey it. It makes the world a better place. Stop stabbing each other. But if you mess up, let me tell you about Jesus. What should we be doing differently than that? Is there anything about that that we should be doing differently? We're not free from the law or from God's justice, but we are free from from this need for perfection. We can't do it on our own. So when we mess up, Jesus is like, dude, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. Go be better. Go obey the law. Go be the salt. Go be the light. Go walk the walk. Not because you're perfect, but because if you're obeying these laws, you look different enough that the world has to ask, what's up? 
This whole series is about life upside down. And Christ lays out this blueprint for his kingdom. And it's all kind of whack. It's silly. It's ridiculous. They want a military leader. They want someone to liberate them from Rome, the Jewish people. And Jesus is none of those things. He's a carpenter. He tells us to preserve the world, to light up the darkness. And we say, how? And he says, I told you how. A couple thousand years ago on Mount Sinai, I gave you two rocks that told you how to be the salt, be the light, change the world. But you missed the point. Because by this time, now you have 600-something laws, and you say they're all from me because you can't keep 10. And the purpose of these laws isn't to save you. Faith saves you. Faith always saved you. You think Abraham and Elijah aren't sitting up in heaven with God? Faith has always saved you. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to walk the walk. God's up there saying, I got Elijah, I got Abraham, we're throwing a party, you're invited. Have faith. All right, great. Now here's, here's some rules that you should live by to make the world a better place, to light up the darkness, to be the salt and give the world taste. We're not talking about lighting up the darkness in, in the sense that this philosophical concept. Do we not live in a dark world, you guys? You guys are in an awesome situation. You might not feel like it because high school is weird. You've got to find a good church word. High school is terrible sometimes. But we live in a dark world right now. We need you guys to light it up. I don't know if they have bells in school anymore. Do they? Do they have bells in school? Like to dismiss you for recess or at the end of class? You don't have recess anymore, I guess. Well, here's why I say it. Because I, in elementary school, we had a bell. You know, it was a big, loud bell in the hallways and whatever. And the bell would go off and the teacher would still be teaching and we would all kind of like, you know do this one-foot-out-the-door motion. And the teacher would be like, the bell doesn't dismiss you, I do. And we hated it when our teacher said that because the bell is going off. I want to leave. I want to leave this room. I've been staring at you for hours. Let me go. We hated it when the teacher said that, but I love it when God says the law doesn't save you. I do. Because I can't do it. I can't do it, guys. I'm standing up here. I'm a funny guy. I bounce around a lot. I tell little stories. I'm a broken sinner. I'm hurting all the time because of my own sin. And I mess up, and I go to God, and I'm like, sorry, I messed up. And he's like, it's okay. Go, you know, do better. And I'm like, okay. And I go, and I do worse, and I go back to God. I'm like, sorry, I messed up again. And he's like, it's okay. Just can you try to do better? And I'm like, yeah. And like an idiot, I go to God over and over again. And like Elijah in that cave, God doesn't come to me with this big, booming voice. God isn't mad at me. He comes at me with a little whisper in my heart. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, a little whisper in my heart. He goes, knock it off. Look at what you're doing. Can you light up the world when you're doing this? I'm trying to build a kingdom, dog, and you're carrying one brick like it's an entire wall.
You like that one, Chris? God isn't going to love you any less because you mess up. That's what the point of the law is, to show you how much you mess up. The law points you to Christ. The law points you to your need for a Savior because you can't do it just like I can't do it. And it's the faith and that sacrifice of Christ that now saves you, but you still have the law, and that's what sanctifies you. There's your church word of the day. Sanctification. Not justification. You're saved by faith. But this law is what makes us different. This law is what lights up the world. So stay salty and stay lit. That's in the Bible. Indirectly. Are you living salty? Are you losing your taste? Are you lighting up the darkness? If you walk into a dark room and there's a candle lit in the middle of that room, do you miss it? Do you not notice the candle? You see it every time. Do people see you every time? We got some questions at the tables for you guys to talk about. If you go here a lot, you know that drill. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get into it. Dear Lord, thank you for using this broken, terrible person. Thank you for giving me chance after chance to come back. To come back to you in my guilt and in my shame. Thank you for your overflowing forgiveness, God. Pour out your love, pour out your grace on all of us here. We all need it. God, reach into the hearts and minds of these people and do a thing do a thing in me. Love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.